Great guests, great stories, great listening. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I am your social worker with the microphone. I am Catherine Zox on Voice America Women's Network, as you all know, with my co-host, Lauren Beller. Lauren and I are moving to Voice America, the flagship station, on the 19th. That's the 19th of November. Hey, folks, it's going to be the same time, 10 to 11 Eastern. Standard time, but uh, different day, Wednesdays instead of Thursdays. Of course, you can always download our, our show anyway, anytime, 24 hours a day if you want to listen to us because you can go right to the archives. So, Lauren, how are you this morning? I am excellent, Catherine. You can't, I can't be better, actually. I have news for you. I want to hear. It's Sarah Palin news. Let me hear. <laughs> I love it. I was getting emails from several people. Did you hear? And then I turned on the television. I went to MSNBC, and it's all over the news this morning. Wasilla Hillbillies. This comes from the Rolling Stones. <laughs> this is going to be good. Yeah, via Newsweek, via via uh, WS, uh, MSNBC, Wasilla Hillbillies looting Neiman Marcus. Get this. According to Newsweek, Palin's shopping spree was even bigger than the $150,000, which has been already reported. Now, Lauren, you're not going to believe this. Newsweek has learned that Palin's shopping spree at high-end department stores was more expensive than previously reported. While publicly supporting Palin, McCain's top advisors privately fumed at what they regarded as her outrageous profligacy. Is that how you pronounce that? I, th- I think so. Well, it's P-R-O-F-L-I-G-A-C-Y. Just her outrageousness, that's what it means. One senior aide said that Nicole Wallace, that's a senior aide from, from McCain, had told Palin to buy three suits for the convention and hire a stylist. But instead, the vice presidential nominee began buying for herself and her family clothes and accessories from top stores such as Saks Avenue and Neiman Markets, Right. According to two knowledgeable sources, a vast majority of the clothes were bought by a wealthy donor who was shocked when he got the bill. Palin also used low-level staffers to buy some of the clothes on their credit cards. Oh, my God. Yes, you have to comment on this. The McCain campaign found out last week when the aides sought reimbursement. One aide estimated that she spent tens of thousands more than the reported 150,000. And this morning on the television, on TV, they estimated 20 to 40,000 more. And also in this article, 20 to 40,000 went to buy clothes for her husband. Oh my God! It, it gets better. Some articles of clothing have apparently been lost. Are those the ones that were going to go to charity? An angry aide characterized the shopping spree as Wasilla Hillbillies looting Neiman Marcus from coast to coast, and that is a quote, and said the truth will eventually come out when the Republican Party audits its books. Hey. Oh, my goodness. Aren't we so glad we have elected Barack Obama? Yes, we are so glad. Are you surprised? No, absolutely not. doesn't surprise me at all. It's all, I mean, it's all a farce. It's all pretend. It's all, I mean, this, as I said, and this comes from me, unprincipled narcissists 
go look that up, folks, in DSM three, and you'll see what that means. It's all, and it's all, and the social I, Aaron, worker with a microphone speaks. <laughs> and Lauren, listen to this. Also, I have heard that she wanted to speak during, you know, saying goodbye, you know, during the concession speech, but they wouldn't let her speak. Oh, that doesn't. It wasn't appropriate for her to speak. No, they, but she, she wanted to say goodbye. And then, did you see they interviewed her when she got off the plane? I and, did. And she sort of distanced herself from McCain. She said, yeah. "Well, if John lost the election, it wasn't my fault." <laughs> I mean, it was, I thought it was also telling at the end when he did his, you know, his what's it called when the speech that he read, said he's out of the race. Whatever yeah, that concession. Was. That's concession. Speech. Yeah, thank you. When he did that, and I thought that when I walked off stage, I thought there was a lot of coolness between them. You could feel it. You could see it, right? Yes, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Not just between McCain and Palin, but McCain and um, Todd. Ah, interesting. I wasn't even looking at that relationship. Yeah. Well, they, he wouldn't, again, John McCain did not look at him when he shook his hand. Well, that's because he had one of those 20 or he had <laughs> extra twenty to $40,000 suits and stuff. Uh, that, that's really, uh, it's amazing. I don't think she's going to get too far in the Republican Party after I all this. I can't imagine. I, I, I don't, cannot imagine. No, I think she's going to do what a friend of mine said. She could end up being evangelical uh, orator and make zillions of dollars Which doing that. Which would be that. okay. It would yeah, be okay. Would, yeah, because I, I just think, it seems to me, and it, she, I just get the feeling that she's alienated a lot of people. Um that you know, and we don't even know the specifics of all of that. But isn't that amazing? It's always it the tip amazing. of the ice. It's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, but the only, we only know so much. And even I think that if you get a flavor of what the real story is through the media, but there's always like something. It's like the tip, as you said, the tip of the iceberg. It's much, much bigger underneath. If the, if the media has gotten a taste of that, there's so much more. Here's another piece. This is all gossip, folks. All gossip, but I love it, and I know Lauren loves it. And we love to talk gossip, but not always. <laughs> not always gossip. But the word was out also, this is gossip, that Sarah Palin, when she had her interview with Katie Couric, that she didn't prepare herself for that and that they were angry at her for that. That's why she came across as she did. I mean, she couldn't answer any of the questions that, you know, Putin flying overhead kind of thing, that she had not prepared for that interview. Wow. Can you imagine doing that? Can you imagine doing – look what you do. You're all over the country speaking, you know, not prepared. Not, you know, I would never not be prepared. There's always something that, you, yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, so that's well, more especially stuff. that particular interview because that was her first interview out of the box. You know Katie Couric is going to ask really good world global questions, you know. But you know the question she's going to ask, one, oh, yeah. two, three, you know, you should, with the foreign policy questions, you know, Supreme Court. I don't want to go all over those again, but it's interesting. If that's true, I mean, not prepared, I mean, boy, do you, you don't, the complete opposite of Barack Obama. Yeah, exactly. Oh, 180 degrees. So I have some news. You want to hear my news? Yeah, I want to hear your news, and then I can so, say something about Michelle's outfit. <laughs> <laughs> you go to Michelle's outfit. It's actually a better segue. No, go ahead. Is yours going to be like heady and really, you know? Yeah, well, I'm changing the tone, so you you go, because Michelle's outfit is going to be a little bit more. It's a little, you're going right down the perfect path. But. Right, I have to do the outfit thing. What did you think? I mean, I got, Michelle, we need those. To, she's the opposite of Sarah Palin. Why did she, you wear that outfit? I don't. I didn't like the outfit. No, who, I don't know one woman who did. My girlfriend like called it. me up. She said, oh, my God, why, why did Michelle wear that outfit? And why? She said, my mother, my 86, not my mother, but her, like, 86-year-old mother said, of all the things to choose. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> she well, made a statement. Was, I was watching the Today Show this morning very briefly. I only saw a tiny bit. And um, they said it best. 
She has her own style, and she carries it well. <laughs> well, Lauren, I thought she had the red and the black, and one of the girls had red on. Those girls are gorgeous. They, they are, are so, so beautiful. adorable. You could just eat them up. But anyway, one had black on and one had red on, red, I think. Yeah, yeah. So she did a combination with her dress. But let's say the, when she is first lady and she is with heads of state, you know, they always get a designer and they choose a big-time designer to do their clothes. And Michelle will, too, and still find her own you know, her own style. She, yeah, her own style. And she, but she does. She's, it's interesting that she does choose. And now and then, you know, most of the time I think she looks great. And then now and then she'll pick an outfit and I'll look at it and say, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, she, her, she's too smart for that, I guess. You know, for all those of us who don't have that kind of a brain, we can concentrate more on our clothes maybe. I don't know. But, uh, okay, so what were you going to say? So this is totally changing direction, but this is an email directly from, uh, this was Wednesday morning. So right after the you know right after the election, and this is from my sister's friend from Vienna, from Europe. Sister's friend from Vienna, and she's so, in Vienna now. Yeah, well, the friend lives there. The friend lives in Vienna. So he says, I would like to congratulate all my U.S. friends for the new president Obama. Speaking as a European, I realized these elections with a big relief. Since I have been living, since I was living in the U.S., I was starting to get more interested in politics of your country. And after reading a lot of books, I started to understand. And now, very happy to see what's happening. This change is a big change for America after this terrible governess of Bush too, and it's even a big chance for all of us to work closer together. Now I feel better. In the, now I will feel better in the future when I enter the borders of your country, which I love, as you all know. And I hope I will find time to visit you again soon. Have a great day and the best from Europe. Wonderful. That, Isn't that and great? And also, I think Lauren, it reflects the feelings of so many Europeans, Asians. I mean, everybody was. You know, he said it so well. Your sister's friend, but I mean, they were dancing in the streets they in Indonesia, were. in oh Africa. They, of course, in Paris, they were in the bars having a great time and toasting to Obama and London and 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 everywhere. So it's, uh, I mean, the whole and you and I, you know, it's that whole relationship. You know, the world is flat. Thomas Friedman, they're all looking at us. You exactly. know, whole, I think that we. Um, I just have to say, after weeks and months of whatever of of talking about what we've been talking about, I just have to congratulate ourselves, not just you and I, the whole world. You know, well, you can just congratulate listening. me. That's okay. Forget about the whole world. I you didn't. so funny. I just think that I'm so proud of our country for doing what we did, you know? I am too, and I am so proud of myself for doing what I did. Because, you should be proud of yourself. Well, Lauren, when we were watching television, my boyfriend and I, he was falling asleep because he, <laughs> and I, all of a sudden they said, and Pennsylvania goes to Barack Obama. Well, you know me. Uh, I have been in Pennsylvania walking the streets, on the phones. I said, I won Pennsylvania. Exactly. <laughs> so excited. We did it. We did it. We did it. One vote at a time. One vote at a time. And you're going to, oh, our guests, you're going to love these these ladies. Who we They're the second guest, not the first one. But uh, they've written a book called The Charismatic Organization, Eight Ways to Grow a Nonprofit that Builds Buzz, Delights Donors, and Energizes Employees. Cool. Yeah, so what, and that's what it's all about, actually, the charismatic organization, which is, I would, you know, Barack Obama uh, is the head, I would say, of his own charismatic organization. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and these two ladies, one of them, Shirley Segawa and Deb Jospin, we don't know which one's going to be on this morning, but uh, Shirley, maybe you've heard of her, co-founder, she's, both of them founded the Segwa Jospin Consulting Firm, but Shirley was named a woman to watch in the 21st century by Newsweek Mm -hmm. Magazine. 
Interesting. Yeah, one of the most influential working mothers in America by Working Mother Magazine. So that's right up your alley. I love it. Right up your Working Mother's Alley. I love the Working Mother's Alley. <laughs> um, but anyway, so that's good. But our first, our first guest, well, we got about two minutes rest. I, like, I talk to so fast sometimes I go for, I, I don't finish my sentences. That's what one of my boys said. He's listening to my show. He said, Mom, just finish your sentence. I said, well, I get ahead of myself. I can't help it. <laughs> well, he's listening and saying the same thing again today. Yeah. Well, he, says, he never <laughs> listens to me. <laughs> <laughs> Something for the pain, one doctor's account of life and death in the ER, Paul Austin. Interesting guy, went to medical school later in life, and now he's an ER doctor, so he's going to tell his story. Um, and those are our two guests, so uh, he's going to be our first one coming up. Oh, we only got one minute till break, so I guess uh, he'll be here soon, or hopefully. Anyway, you're listening to Lauren Beller, Catherine Zox. It's Voice America Women's Network. We're going to be on... Voice America, the flagship station, starting the 19th of November, so you can tune in, folks. That's at 10 o'clock Eastern Time, same time, but just a different day. And uh, thanks for joining us this morning. we got lots coming up, as I said, Don't uh, lots of good stuff coming up in this next half hour. beat you over the head with our opinion and we listen to yours the new face of talk radio voice america women's radio network if you've tried everything on the market and can't seem to get the radiant results you want from your skincare routine it's time you stop shopping and start listening skin health today will help you take charge and start making smart choices for a lifetime of radiant skin and positive self-image Join host Celeste Hilling and her esteemed panel of experts every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for Skin Health Today on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Feeling overworked? Overwhelmed? Do you feel like you could use a getaway right about now? Have we got a show for you. It's called De-Stress Radio, and this show will help you take control of the stress in your life. Join hosts Robin Siegel and Marin Vertok every week. They'll motivate you to attain balance in both your personal and professional life. You'll want to share each episode with those important to you. Listen for De-Stress Radio with Robin and Marin every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Holistic health and well-being covers many facets, including stress, time management, weight loss, cardiovascular training, and aging. And that's just to name a few. Your life without limits will help to sort it all out for you. Join host Joe Sardi and the top minds in holistic health and well-being for an educational and entertaining hour. Listen for Your Life Without Limits. Heard every Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Today's professional woman is confronted by outrageous advertising and cultural pressures that assume how a woman should look and behave. The show Women, Food, Sex, and Power, Rekindling Your Fire, will finally challenge these seriously flawed assumptions and discuss daring alternatives. 
Join host Bethany Gagne for an authentic reflection of the modern woman every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. We talk with you, not at you. We're Voice America, Women's Radio Network, the new face of talk radio. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you would like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us this morning. Catherine Zox with Lauren Deller on Voice America Women's Network. So, Lauren, our guest is not quite ready yet, so you and I going to have to talk till he gets ready. This is the good doctor who's the author of the book, uh, Something for the Pain, One Doctor's Account of Life and Death in the ER. Um, that's scary stuff, both for the doctor and the patient. And the book is really, a, it's one of those uh, page-turner books that you have to read, and once you start, you keep can't reading stop. it. And is he in the ER room now, and that's why he can't come talk? Could be. Wow. But that, that, that's part of his thing with the book, you're right, because... You know, if they call him and he's on duty, he has to go. But I think maybe he could be in the ER room on his cell phone. (laughs) Who knows? Oh, my. I've spent many, many years in the ER room with my boys. You know, three boys, Lauren. You can Uh, imagine, right? Well, I spend more time in the hospital ER with my husband versus my daughter. (laughs) Well, because he's a boy. I'm saying men. Exactly. He's already broke. Like, there's there's been three reasons we've had to go to the doctor in the past three years. And they always have something going on. What is it with men? I mean, I don't know. Accident prone. Or they, I don't know. They just do things that they don't, I don't know. Stupid. They're babies, too. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. No, I mean, I once went to, our our guest is ready, but I'm just going to tell this short story because I want, I had two ski, they used, you know, skiing and basketball and all the sports and stuff. I was in the orthopedics, the orthopedist's office twice in one week with two different kids. So and getting x-rays, right, for broken bones and stuff, and I'm thinking they're going to think that I'm beating up my, on my kids, right? But, and they, so the, tech, the uh, ra- uh, radiology technician looks at me, you know, the second time I bring in the second, one of my second, the second boy, and she goes, didn't I see you here early? <laughs> I said, well, that was with another kid. That was the wrist. This is the ankle. So, I mean, and I was oh doing that God. all the time. Well, well, what can you do? Anyway, so uh, he's ready. Paul Austin, Dr. Paul Austin, author of Something for the Pain, One Doctor's Account of Life and Death in the, uh, in the ER. This is his memoir where he recounts his journey to confidence and compassion in the ER. It's described, the book is described as a gritty, eye-opening picture of life in the ER and its effects on an ER doctor. Dr. Paul Austin, as Austin movingly reflects on how his job almost destroyed his own life and alienated him from his family, the true magnitude of the life and death struggle of ER existence becomes strikingly apparent. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Paul Austin. How are you? Good morning. It's great to be here. We, do you have to, are you in the ER? Is that why you weren't ready? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It's just uh, I, I didn't have it on my day planner. It, I'm, I'm flipping through all my... Oh, it, it, interview request, and I, I just don't have it. I am sorry. That's okay. I'm, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk to your PR people and uh, tell. That's okay. But you're here. Good. At least you weren't uh, in the ER room operating or whatever. I mean, that, your book is exciting. Like I said to my co-host, Lauren, we're both mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, one of those page-turner kinds of books. you got in a remarkable story. Let's start with the beginning because you didn't just go right into medical school. I mean, you have to be one really smart guy. You go to a top medical school. This is after trying to get in when you're 27, 28 years old. What were you doing before then? Oh, gosh. Uh, I was uh, an English major my first time in college. 
dropped out, uh, had a bunch of different jobs. Finally, he became a firefighter for City High Point. Yellow hat, red truck, putting out fires. And after five years of that, decided to go back to college and kind of started all over. And from that point on, it was more of a straightforward trajectory where um, I, I, I was uh, an undergraduate and, and then applied to med school and got in. How'd you get into med school after? I mean, most I know so many kids that were, you really have to have done really well to be to get in, or they like your experience. I know so many kids trying to get into med school, and uh, really talented, smart kids. And boy, it's so difficult. But I guess maybe being a firefighter, you had a lot of experiences that come to come into play besides your intellect. Well, right. Well, thanks. It was uh, that made the interviewing a lot easier. That we, we had something interesting to talk about uh, on the interview trail of med school. Basically, what I do is just studied. I mean, I just studied as hard as I could, and I made as good as great as I could. It was just a matter of that. There are probably a, a fair number of my classmates who were who were smarter than me trying to get in med school, but few of them worked as hard as I did. All right, so you are focused and goal oriented, and you did it. Now, oh, graduate from med school. What about why ER doctor? I mean, that's like to, to me. It seems to me one of the toughest. Uh, uh, dis- disciplines you could get into in medicine. I mean, what drew you to being an ER doctor? Right. Uh, yeah, it was. I, I worked as a nursing assistant uh, when I was in college. I ran out of money and I was paying for it myself, so I got a job as a nursing assistant in the ER to pay for school and, and to see if I really wanted to be a doctor. And so my background on the fire department and my background as as a, a nursing assistant in the ER it, it seemed kind of a good fit. Um, I really like the nurses I work with. Um, I, I like um, the, the docs I work with. They, they just seem, the ER docs just seem cooler than the other docs. Is it because of the excitement? Is there something always different? It happens quickly. The adrenaline is rushing. I mean, it's different than being a radiologist. Right. Sort of, yeah, some, some of that's true. I mean, that must be true to, to a certain degree. I think the, the, um, the fact that I, I get to take care of babies, I get to take care of men, I get to take care of women. Uh, that I, I use uh, a pretty broad knowledge base uh, in, in what I'm doing. And, and uh, although the, the, there would be an appeal to like be a, a cardiologist and, and, and do cardiac catheterizations and get really, really good at opening up coronary arteries for people who are having a heart attack, and, and I think that would have a, a lot of appeal to just be exquisitely um, talented at, at one very small focused thing. But on the other hand, it, I, I kind of like being a generalist that uh, gets, gets to do a little bit of everything. You like variety. Well, I, I think you're sort of, before you became a doctor, you liked variety. You're a firefighter. You did all different kinds of things. seems to fit your personality, right. it seems to me. Right. But, um, you know, talk to us about, you know, because you, I think this is, this is something that I've, I've worked in hospitals as a social worker, and you bring this up in your book, and I think this is an important point that you talk about how doctors – from medical, you know, by the, you know, from freshmen and first year medical students to the time they become doctors and are practicing physicians, their compassion index seems to just go down the tubes. They, you know, they start out enthusiastic, loving their patients, and in some cases, even in ER, they end up hating their patients and blaming their patients for being sick. So, talk to us about that compassionate mind that physicians are supposed to have but don't necessarily do. Right. There's a um, there's a notion of it like a compassion curve where you, where you start off at the top just very compassionate and altruistic and, and wanting to help people, and that kind of drops off during residency, and then it comes back up um, by the time you finish residency and, and you're in practice for a while. You kind of regain uh, your sense of compassion, and I, um, 
part of that is just uh, you know, sick people complain relentlessly, and, and uh, understandably. But but if you uh, just immerse yourself in uh, the the illness uh, of, of others, it's hard to bring a fresh, compassionate heart every day when it's just the same misery, shift after shift, day after day. So you hear the same story over and over again. You talk about the drunk who comes into the ER, same thing. They're hitting on you. You're trying to save them. Uh, And and sort of the stories just repeat themselves and repeat themselves. So, But then, doctor, so how do you get away? So how can you maintain your – because you have to have some feel for your patients, don't you? Do you? Although my doctors, I don't think, care about me. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to know the truth, I'm in there. What's wrong with you, lady? We'll fix it. Here's your medication and goodbye. That's how I feel most of the time. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's. Um, I, I, I think that the doctors in the community are under pressure to move people through the office quickly, and um, and in the ER we certainly are under pressure to move quickly because you never know if there's someone in the waiting room with abdominal pain and it's actually their appendix and it's going to pop and they're going to get deathly ill, or someone's in the waiting room and they think they have an ingestion and they're actually having a heart attack, and um, so there, there's a there's a pressure in the ER to move people forward quickly just so you can get to the sick people because there's so many people who, who may not be as critically ill and they've just come to the ER to kind of get checked out or something. So uh, I, I've, try, I've learned to sit down. I've learned to listen for at least a minute before I interrupt. At least I try to do that. Sometimes it's hard. Um, and I, I try to um, uh, toughen up when I need to be tough and, and soften up when I need to be soft. But it's, I've come to think that compassion is less of an emotion and more of a discipline. I've come to think it's a habit, and it uh, has as much to do with um, caring about people, sometimes from an emotional reserve, because that's the only way you can do it. So you're saying, doctor, that you have to really <clears throat> train yourself to be compassionate. It's just mm-hmm. not an automatic response, necessarily. No, Keep on- no. Keep on the course. You know, we, have, we don't have that much time left, and I do want to talk about one thing because in the book it's, it keeps coming up. I mean, some of the mis- doctors do make mistakes. That's just the way it, at some point they're going to make a mistake, and, and you have that what you call a heartbreak, heartbreaking tale of uh, Mr. Kelly, which happened to you early on in your career, something you'll never forget. Right. Uh, yeah, we should tell the, our listeners that uh, that's not their real name. I change all names in the book. But Mr. Kelly was uh, early 40s, chest pain. Um, his EKG was normal. His cardiac enzymes were negative. And, but I thought probably the safest thing to do would be watch him overnight just to make sure he wasn't having a heart attack. And I called his, his own doctor on the phone and, and said, I think we need to bring this guy a ruling map. And I got talked into sending him home. It was my decision, um, but against my better judgment, I uh, discharged him. And he, um, and I finished my shift and went home. The next day I went to work, and, and one of my coworkers said, Paul, do you remember Mr. Kelly? I said, yeah. He came back in cardiac arrest. So he, he had gone home and, and had died, and, and the rescue squad brought him back, and they couldn't resuscitate him. And that was just devastating for me because I, I felt that I had made a medical mistake. Um, to me, it seemed obvious, but also there was an ethical mistake or a, a moral error. Uh, a moral mistake I'd made at at letting him go, even though I thought he should stay. 
So oh. you didn't go with your gut. I mean, you, there's, right. there's the medical part, at least that's what I picked up in the book and from what you're saying, and you allowed other Actually, other physicians also wanted him to go home, so it wasn't just your decision. Right. We, got, we have one minute left, and I guess, how about, give us, I think there's one thing that I, what should patients do so that that doesn't happen to them? Because you mentioned Mrs. Kelly, and that's not her real name. She wanted her husband to stay there. Right. So as a patient, you can also protect yourself. Uh, you can speak when, up, yeah. I, uh, I, I think that if Ms. Kelly would have said, uh, Doctor, I'm just, I just don't want to take him home. I think that would have tipped me over the balance to call the guy back and say, man, just come admit the guy. So uh, I, I think families um, sh- should voice their concerns so that the doc can kind of add that in the mix as they're trying to weigh out what to do. Yeah, I think I, that's what I get from your book. I mean, it is. It's the doctor's responsibility, but it's also the consumer's responsibility, the patient's responsibility. Anyway, folks, you can buy the book, um, Dr. Paul Austin. You can buy his book online. Something for the Pain, One Doctor's Account of Life and Death in the ER, uh, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere, and we can go to your website as well. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love that. <laughs> okay, paulaustin.com. Great having you on the show this morning. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. We're going to take a break. We've got a few seconds left. Lauren, we will be back, you and I, in a few minutes. Voice America Women's Network. Um, I'm your social worker with a microphone. Radio that informs, entertains, and enlightens you. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. Today's professional woman is confronted by outrageous advertising and cultural pressures that assume how a woman should look and behave. The show Women, Food, Sex, and Power, Rekindling Your Fire, will finally challenge these seriously flawed assumptions and discuss daring alternatives. Join host Bethany Gagne for an authentic reflection of the modern woman every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Hey, y'all. This is Stephen Cochran. As a country artist, I have traveled around this great country of ours, often meeting our brave men and women in uniform. And as a Marine and veteran of both the Iraq and Afghan conflict, I know how important it is to thank our troops who defend our freedom each and every day. One of the best ways to thank them is to give their children and spouses the gift of education. Scholarships for two years, four years, and vocational school. This is exactly what a national charity, Thanks USA, does. Please go to their website, www.thanksusa.org, to make a generous donation to the Thanks USA Scholarship Fund for the families of the troops, and I thank you. What it comes down to, ladies, is that dividing line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart. But I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Finally, radio that was made just for you. Voice America Women's Radio Network. 
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Lauren and I are back. Lauren Beller. It's actually it's Lauren Beller Blake, isn't it, Lauren? I'm always, i got to add the last name there. I never do. It's okay. <laughs> is that okay? I don't mind it at all. I don't, that doesn't bother me. Lauren Beller and Catherine Zox, Voice mm-hmm. America Women's Network. Don't forget to listen to us on Wednesdays because we're switching to Wednesdays, same time, same, not the same station as Voice <laughs> America, the flagship station on Wednesdays at 10 o'clock Eastern Time. And uh, as I said before, Lauren, we've got a great guest coming up right now, Deborah Jostin. She is the author of the Charismatic organization eight ways to grow a nonprofit that builds buzz delights donors and energizes employees and um, she talks about uh, what's the difference between a nonprofit organization that is chronically underfunded and understaffed and one that is the go-to group on its issues, the place to work, and the leader in its field, the organization that will fold under the growing financial crisis and the one that will weather the storm. The answer may not be as simple as you think, so that's why we have have her on the show with us. Deb, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, this is like very timely, obviously. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And you are co-founder of the is it Sagawa? We have my my co-author and business partner Shirley Sagawa. We have a consulting practice called Sagawa Jospin. Terrific. And you also served as the director of AmeriCorps from 1997 to 2001. Graduate of Tufts University, London School of Economics, law degree from Georgetown University. You should be one of those women who run for public office. <laughs> and um, I'm not kidding. Well, thank you. Uh, yes. All right. So talk to us about you. Two. It's a, it's the charismatic organization, not necessarily charismatic leader, because charismatic leaders can fail, but it's the organization itself that has to be charismatic. That's right. That's right. Uh, Shirley and I have um, each about 15 years of experience working with uh, both large and small national and local nonprofits, either through our work at AmeriCorps or as part of our consulting practice. And we were always struck by what made some organizations just sing and others really falter. Um, and what we define it as is um, the ones that are really great, what we call the charismatic organizations, are those with a high degree of social capital. And those are the networks of relationships that organizations create, both within their organization with their employees, their donors, their boards, and with other groups. And uh, they grow their networks over the course of time. And so that's, that's the basis of our book. So tell us about the ones that, 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 that I mean, because you talk about ones in the book, obviously, what, that we're familiar with. What organizations, like, really um, focus on their social capital? Well, some of the, some of the uh, there's so many. There's so many wonderful organizations out there. The ones that we have profiled in the book, um, uh, there are some, some non-profit groups. There's a group based out of Boston called um, Citizen Schools, which is an amazing group that works with middle school kids, but... Um, has created opportunities for people outside, you know, volunteers like you and me to go in and work with middle school kids as apprentices and, and to teach them stuff. The, the bottom line is to help keep middle school kids engaged in school. That's what people have dis- discovered is when kids decide to drop out. And so that's one way you're saying, Deb, of or, or, 
energizing the organization. Yeah. It doesn't suffer from what do they call entropy, you know, everything. No, that's yeah. right. People, people flock to nonprofits because they want to make a difference and they want to be part of a community uh, that they enjoy. And the really charismatic nonprofits um, make an impact. They can show their impact. They have a mission that you care about. And they have ways for you to get, they have multiple ways for you to get engaged, not just writing a check. But, you know, to be advocates for them, to be advisors for them, to be ambassadors for them, to be volunteers. And so the really successful nonprofits have discovered, and they have great ways to communicate what they do. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it's through storytelling or through uh, social networking opportunities, they're very creative, they're very innovative, they're not stuck in, uh, in bad patterns. But they're and, and and they respect the people that work with them and work for them. So how does Deb? How does this resonate with the, with the campaign? I mean, as I'm, I'm looking, at yes. his, yeah. I mean, how do, Barack well, Obama doesn't think, he incorporate all of what you're talking about in your book, Charismatic Organization? We we think so actually, and we have been uh, knowing when our book was coming out. We were thinking, oh my goodness, this is crazy because we have a book coming out the week before the election. Who's going to pay attention? But the the um, bottom line is that if, if we were to do a different book, I mean, someone will write a book on the Obama campaign, and it is the ultimate in charismatic organization. It's not only a charismatic leader, but he's been able to create a charismatic organization. Um, there were multiple ways for people to get engaged. People were so, There was such a mission that people felt inspired by. Um, there seemed to be enormous respect, the whole No Drama Obama piece, where people were respected and there was seemed to be a great deal of transparency and, and things. So those are the hallmarks of, um, uh, of a charismatic organization. They were innovative. Uh, they communicated in ways that we'd never seen before. I, for one, I have never, I mean, I always vote, and I've voted uh-huh. in many elections more than I want to say, but I, I've i never been involved in a campaign like I was in this one, and it is because, just as you say, he had so many ways to involve people. So I couldn't wait to get to BarackObama.com right. and right. personalized it, which is what you talk about. I mean, that social, uh, using social capital. Per, I, I, I felt like I was important. I mean, I was you know, going to the blue, uh, going to Pennsylvania. I mean, I never right. did that before. Right. Knocking on doors, and then I got a thank you note from him. That's exactly right. I mean, that's exactly right. The ways they they were very people focused. It was very grassroots, but very people focused. You felt you were thanked for the for the volunteer work that you'd done. You felt that your work really had made a difference because it had. You know, all those twenty five dollar checks added up. You know. And I, uh, yeah. And they and they made it they made it very easy for you. I mean, uh, there are many of our colleagues and friends who volunteered, and they talked about how easy it was to volunteer, you know, and that they felt like they really made an impact. And that is now the challenge, of course, will be to see if the government can become as open and and engaging and empowering as the campaign has been. But I think that'll be a fascinating uh, be a fascinating um, question. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Mm-hmm. Then, how do you translate that the campaign into government so that we have the same kind? You know, operates in the same way with that charismatic organization right. and transparency, as you say. I think, and and I didn't Barack Obama say at one time that you know he talks about transparency in government, but utilizing the internet and being able to do that and having access to all of these government organizations simply by going on the net to be able to see what they're doing, how they're right. doing it, or how much money they're spending. Well, I think so, and I haven't, I haven't, I haven't gone to look at, but I was reading in the papers today about their transition team, and there will be a website up by the end of the week that will allow you, Joe, you know, Joe and Jane public to 
be able to watch as the transition progresses. And, you know, as they, as things come up, they'll be on the website, you know, and, and, uh, I think that's fascinating. And I, I know for a fact because of the generation that's coming in and the, some of the people who've been advising him that the technology and the new uses of technology will be shocking to many of us who are older than, than, than the team that's coming in now. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I still am slightly older than the team coming in now. I well, you're younger than I am. <laughs> the technology challenge, but um, it'll be... Well, this is, uh, he's been described, he, uh, Deb, as the fir- first Internet, Internet president, and that's I think right. that's true. That's right. And I think that, in my opinion, I think the McCain campaign underestimated that, I mean, um, which had a lot to do with how the... The, the campaign was organized, but it's amazing. Yeah, this well, I, I think, think you know one of the things that we talk about in our book is mission and being very clear with the mission and and having a mission that people want to grab onto and sticking with it, um, being able to innovate when you feel like you're going off path, but not you know, but but having that steadiness. And I think that was something that the Obama campaign excelled at was having the steadiness of their mission. You kind of knew where they were going all the time. And don't you think that uh, a lot of nonprofits, or at least the ones, and I, I don't like to say this, but many that I've been involved with, it, it, just what you're saying is what they don't seem to be able to do. They get drawn from one great idea to the next, and the right. idea might be a good one. Oh, we'll try this, we'll try that. They're not, or don't seem to think that they're governed by the bottom line, and so it all ends up in this kind of chaotic, you know, that's right. That's right. stuff. <laughs> and I think in the long run, people don't like chaos. They really like to know. Um, they like to know. The bottom line is, people like to know that when they're giving money or when they're volunteering, you know, that their their contribution is making a difference. And if there's chaos, you're not really sure what's happening. But if you are more charismatic and you have a a, a plan and a path, and there's data to back up where you've gone and how how much impact you are making, people just love that. I mean, you know, it sounds sort of counterintuitive because sometimes the chaos can be fun and exhilarating, but at the end of the day, you really actually do want to know what's happening. Don't you think that maybe, as we're we're talking about uh, Barack Obama, the way he ran his campaign and hopefully the way he runs the government, uh, you need a technology person perhaps at every one of these nonprofits, right? Yes, I think that's exactly right. You, you You need someone who can help you communicate, and so much of communications is done on the internet, whether it's showing your video or, you know, doing your newsletters now. I mean, almost no one does newsletters by postal mail anymore. Um, you know, what are the visuals? What are the photos? What's the, what's the sound? You know, and I think the most effective communicators are using that, that new technology to bring you in, to draw you into the people uh, of your organization. So you can yeah. really feel what it's like to play on the playground with the kids or to, to be, you know, working in the schools with the kids. Yeah, so and you're talking about visuals. I mean, the, the, the YouTube thing changed everything. I think it changed the election. It, yes, it did. I think. I think that was a, that will be another, you know, Harvard Business School book when they talk yeah. about you know what, the, the change that YouTube made on this. And how many times could you watch Saturday Night Live? I mean, it was endless. Yeah, and I could watch the same thing over and over again. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. right. Couldn't wait but, to get up in the morning, go to YouTube, and see you know Saturday Night Live and Bill Maher, and I could watch it over and over, which was great. But I, we want to sell your book too because it's a really, really thanks. great book, and it's Thank it's you. the charismatic organization: uh-huh. eight ways to grow a nonprofit that builds buzz, 
delights donors and energizes employees. Shirley Sagawa and Deborah Jospin, who we've been speaking to this morning. Um, it was great having you on the show this morning. Thanks. It was a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it was a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. That was great. She was wonderful, and uh, it is a wonderful book. Uh, we have about 30 seconds left, so I guess uh, Lauren and I will uh, take a short break. You're listening to Voice America Women's Network. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Don't go away, because Lauren and I have lots more to say. We'll be right back. Talking about what you care about. News, relationships, health, finances. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. Hey, Ranger, why do you have to remind people to be careful with fire? Well, Mr. Mountain Lion, sometimes people need to be reminded about certain things, like not to run with scissors or let children play with wild dingoes, and to be responsible for fires they start. So what you're saying is that people can be careless and forgetful? Pretty much. (laughs) That makes me very sad. Sounds like someone needs a hug. Back over, I'll turn your hat into confetti! Remember, only you can prevent wildfires. A public service message from Smokey Bear, the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ag Council. Experts say everybody is addicted to something. Did you know that addiction affects about 15% of our country's middle class population? How many people do you know who are dependent on some kind of substance? Would you guess your friends, your neighbors? How about your family? You may be surprised. Many of us live with chronic pain, which has made us drug dependent, prescription drug dependent. Others struggle with alcohol, methamphetamine, and cocaine addiction. Do you have a chronic pain problem? There is another way out. Tune in each Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for a new prescription for health with Dr. Richard Gracer on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Great guests, great stories, great listening. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us this morning. Lauren Beller, Catherine Zox, Voice America Women's Network. Soon to be heard today is Thursday, folks, in case uh, you didn't know it. Sometimes I don't know what day it is, but we're going to be on Wednesdays. The 19th, we start Wednesdays at 10 o'clock, same station. But you can always download us and listen to us anytime you want. So, Lauren, she's fantastic. This book is is also very timely. For those of you who are just joining us, we were talking to Deborah Jospin, and she's author of The Charismatic Organization, Eight Ways to Grow a Nonprofit that Builds Buzz, Delights Donors, and Energizes Employees, which is exactly, Lauren, Barack Obama, isn't that exactly what he's done? Yeah, I think it's amazing that she wrote the book 
during the time that the campaign was going on, but didn't really write about the campaign, yet it was happening sort of parallel. It Isn't does, though. I, yeah, well, I think those things do happen because the time, you know, there's stuff, stuff in the air, there's stuff that's happening politically. So people come to the same conclusions from different places. But you sent me something very cool that a friend sent to you, and you emailed it to me, and this fits right into it today, how Obama manages. And she mentioned the first one. She did. No drama. No drama Obama. No drama Obama. I love that. I do, too. And as and the thing that you sent me, it said, uh, how do you pronounce it? Plus? David Plus, Plus is it, yeah. uh, his campaign manager? Yep, I mean, David Plus, which I think if he was smart, he would bring him along with whatever he does, because that guy did an amazing job. Well, don't you think he will? I, yeah, whatever I hope he, so. Yeah. I hope so. I mean, as somebody said, though, all he did was organize. He did what he was supposed to do. I, most people don't even know what he looked like. It's, well, he did. He did a couple of YouTube videos, which I loved because you got to know who he was. He looks like he's twelve. I know he does, <laughs> doesn't he? Yeah, he, but he's, he's not. Like, he's definitely older than that. But he does look young. Yeah. All right, here's another one. This is what you how Obama manages, which came from Lauren, which came from somebody else, but it doesn't really matter. Okay, praise those who don't expect it. What is it? You know, that's and and, and that's definitely. I mean, I got praises from Obama in my little letter here, dear Catherine. Um, I don't. Uh, you made history every single day during this campaign. Every day you knocked on doors, made a donation, or talked to your family, friends, and neighbors about why you believe it's time for change. There you go. I mean, this was a letter from the Obama campaign. I didn't expect it. I did. I, and I got one too. You did because I do, well because I donated money. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> and Lauren, he made it so easy. I didn't say any. I was going to say this with Deb, but he. I go to the computer, and they, he would always relate why he needed the money to something specific. Yeah, like we he need did. money. Yeah. What he did exactly? He put like he put, today we're going to spend it on this. Today we're going to do this. And he made it real. He made it real. He did. He made it real. So it made it real for me, and I couldn't wait to go get my little Visa card and like give him more money. I was sitting there like, and then my son emails me. And I, it's never enough. Wait till Sierra gets to be older. But, you know, he was so proud that I was working on the campaign. This is one of the boys. Now he wants me to do something for moveon.org. I mean, it's like there's only one more thing. That's so I, funny. Yeah. I, I made calls, but I said, you know what, I'm, I'm giving my money to Barack directly. What can I say? I can't keep doing, you know, it's enough. At some point, yeah, you have to say, okay, what, what am I going to do for me? Yeah. <laughs> Make every person in a meeting participate. I love that one. Yeah. So how does he do that? When someone's not, well, he's at a meeting, they're doing planning strategy, someone's not talking, and he just looks them in the eye and says, what are you thinking, says Barack Obama. That's, well, I have to tell you, I, I do the same thing. If I'm in a meeting and someone is being quiet, I um, ask them, what's on your mind, or what are you thinking, or what are your thoughts on this topic? There's no, I never run a meeting, whatever it is, whether it's a, um, you know, it doesn't matter, and it's just a natural thing to do. You don't, they're thinking something. Do you feel like you're putting them on the spot, though, sometimes? If you're at a meeting and somebody's sitting there, they might be shy, that it would make them, or, or do you feel like, well, they wouldn't have come to the meeting if they didn't really want to participate? Well, yeah, but some people have to come to a meeting. They're forced. So, yeah, they're forced. And I would think in government you're, you are asked to show up at a meeting. So I think that it's just – I think people get to know your style, that you're expected to contribute. And if you're not, you're going to be called on. And they're, over time, I think they get used to it. So that's a good philosophy. Did you know, and you did because you and I talked about this before, but I didn't realize that Barack Obama's national finance chairman was Peggy Penny 
Peggy, Penny Pritzker, uh, of the Pritzker family. And for those of you who don't know Penny Pritzker, she is uh, of that family, that multi-multi-billion dollar family. I think she's worth over a billion. I'm not sure exactly. But that's who he had as his finance chairman. He knows how to pick the people. I don't know how he knows how to pick the people, but he seems like he's done research on so many presidents and president's staff and how they've run. And I admire that he's not choosing just Democrats or just Republicans. It's just across the board who has been a great, I don't know what, supporter of, and how did they support the president? And that's, he's looking for the cream of the crop. I think it's brilliant. Because he's the cream of the crop. You know, I, I think true. that's part of it. He's the, and his wife is, and they're well-connected in a good way, um, and uh, know people who are have skills comparable to them, and that's a good thing. And like you say, it will be, you know, he's looking to be nonpartisan. And, uh, well, you know, we'll see. Obviously, I'm, I'm sure he's going to have a few Democrats in there. but <laughs> Well, he has to. It was, my mother I was talking to my mother yesterday, driving to a place where I was speaking, and, you know, she's in upstate New York, and she said, did you hear the story about the little girl that interviewed Barack Obama? I said, no. Did you hear the story or see it on TV? I didn't. It was like an 8- or 10-year-old little girl who was interviewing Barack Obama. She wanted, had all these questions for him. In other words, do you like pie or ice cream? He says, I like pie. Do you like... Um, you know, cats or kittens. I like uh, or, uh, cats or dogs. Dogs. So she says, I have one more question. He went on. She had like twelve questions. She says, my last question for you, um, Barack Obama, is, do you like red states or blue states? <laughs> and he, his immediate response was, I'd like to make them all purple. Uh, that's a great answer. Isn't that I a great answer? Yeah, that's that's very cool. What a good question this little girl asked. Great question, yeah. The, the next Katie Couric. The next Katie Couric, exactly, <laughs> except she had somebody who knew how to answer the question, who was, who was well, prepared. That's, that's right. Who was definitely prepared. <laughs> and you on know, his toes. That's a great story. I love it. want to just get back because we have a few more minutes, and I just want to get back to this Internet thing because we haven't seen the last of it. We, I think we've seen the beginning, and we touched on it with that last interview. But the Internet is going to be something that's going to be so much a part of this administration. I mean, it's going to be the same thing as it was during the campaign. You're going to wake up in the morning and be able to get all kinds of inter of information that's already and that's going to engage you in the in the political process. I think I'm excited about it. I think it's the we've never ever been have access to government like this before and I think that we're going to just like you said I couldn't wait to get up in the morning and go to barackobama.com and see what was going on. We're going to have a separate government website just see what's going on. It's going to be brand new, and it's being developed right now as we speak. And I wouldn't be surprised if Barack Obama, as we speak, is partnering with some of these big companies, and we know which ones they are, the big, big companies that have to do with uh, with Internet service, and that will be part of his government, I-, I would think anyway, will be part of his plan, that he'll be connected. He's going to connect himself to these people. So oh, we, absolutely. Yeah, we can get that information. I'm sure of it. And I'm excited. A whole new way of being involved in the government. Yeah, instead of going to, how is it, government.edu.gov. Oh, it's so <laughs> not compelling, and it's so, like, you know, I tried to change my name when I moved to Texas, you know, to get your car registration. It is so complicated and cumbersome. It's not easy, and that's, what, that's how we feel government is. This is going to change the entire system. Yeah, because you want to know how Senator so-and-so voted, you're going to just go on, you're going to know. You want to know how Representative so-and-so, you want to know what's coming up, what, you know, what in the docket, you know, in Congress, you're going to know all of this stuff immediately. And then when you have a better informed uh, group of people, 
we make better choices. We also take better responsibility. Yeah, exactly. It is. It's really exciting. I think this is just this is the beginning. It is the beginning of a whole new way. Yeah. Anyway, we are going. This, uh, next week will be our last week, Lauren, on Thursday, won't it? We've got I think two more it weeks, is. right? Yeah. 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 And then we'll be back. I have to keep reminding people that on Wednesday. And uh, you know what? I also wanted to do. Well, I guess I can't do it now. Because there's the music. You'll have to wait next week, folks, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do. Catherine Zox with Lauren Bell. I hope you had a great day and you enjoyed our show, Voice America Women's Network. Uh, have a good weekend. Uh, we'll see you next Thursday.